Welcome to the Jewish Kaleidoscope with host Rabbi Michael Siegel from the Anshe Emet Synagogue in Chicago. My guest on this episode is Bill Lipsy, who is the founder of the Honey Foundation for Israel, which will be our subject for today. Professionally, Bill is a founding partner and president of Pazina Investment Management, a global investment management firm. I hope I pronounced that correctly. You did. Thank you. But for those of us at the Anshiamet Synagogue, Bill has a, a very, very close connection, though he lives with his family on the East Coast. You want to tell us a little bit about your connection to Anshiamet, Bill, and welcome to the program. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. It's wonderful to talk with you and uh, remotely um, talk with uh, friends at Anshiamet. So I have to tell you, i feel like Anshe Emmet is, um, is a part of me. So my dad, who is Honey of the Honey Foundation. That, that was, was his nickname? Name. Yeah, his, his 10 grandchildren all called him Honey. He was so proud of that name. He had a business card made up uh, that he was Honey. And um, yeah, that's a story in itself. My oldest child, Sarah, who is now the leader of the Honey Foundation. She's a Jewish educator from graduated from JTS more than a decade ago. Sarah, who was very verbal early in her life, couldn't say the name that my dad wanted. He wanted to be called Grandpa, like his father was called. And uh, she heard my mother yelling for my father in the other room. So what does a wife yell for a husband? Uh, a wife yells to the other room, honey. And so that stuck with my daughter. She was able to say honey, and my father loved it. We all loved it. And uh, 10 grandchildren grew up to call him honey. Wonderful story. Thanks. Thanks, honey. Honey grew up at Anshamit. And my great-grandfather... So Honey's grandfather was Louis Lipsy. So and I'm actually named after Louis. Louis is the is the patriarch of our family who moved us from Lithuania to Chicago in the early 1900s. A religious guy, he became the Gabai at Anshe Emmet um, and was the Gabai of Anshe Emmet for more than 30 years. And then my dad grew up there, so Shelly Simon, Scooter's dad, taught my dad his bar mitzvah parsha. Um, Scooter's still one of my dearest friends. Yeah, yeah, your shul feels like home to me, even though I live in New Jersey. I, I feel very much at home at Anshamit. Well, that's wonderful. And I should also mention that our religious school also has a yearly Lipsy Music Festival, which yeah. is another branch, another Lipsy aspect, and uh, we're very proud of that. Let's talk about your work um, with the Honey Foundation. It's fascinating, and let me start by thanking you for your vision and what you've been able to create. So let's start with the basics. Would you describe what the Honey Foundation is and what inspired you to start it? Sure. I guess I, I, I'd have to say to understand why somebody decides to attack a problem, you have to understand the problem and have to sort of see through my eyes what I saw as a problem. And I'll say what I believe is an important attempt at solution. So 
little little over a decade ago, my family and I actually moved to Israel. We did it, obviously not for a permanent aliyah, but we did it because we had the ability to do it and we wanted to see what it would be like to experience life in Israel as residents as opposed to as visitors. And we stayed for about 14 months. Where did it you was, live? We lived in the center of the country. We lived in a town called Ranana. Uh, Ranana is about 25 minutes north of Tel Aviv, and um, it has a big Anglo population. But for us, the real draw was it was pretty close to the American school where we were sending our then sixth grade son, Josh, to. And they had a bus that was going from Ranana, so it was easy. We, we became very entrenched in the community in, in Ranana, and we learned a very real fact, and that is that the role of community rabbi that every American Jew grows up with as normative doesn't exist in Israel unless you're an ultra-Orthodox Jew. I almost want to say it again because it's hard to believe if you, if you don't really spend time in Israel and get under the hood, the role of community rabbi is an avocation, not a profession. There are lots of rabbis. There are lots of rabbis who are not ultra-Orthodox. So the ones who are not ultra-Orthodox effectively make their living doing other jobs. So they're dentists or they're high-tech workers or they're teachers, but they can't afford to make a living doing actually what they love, you know? And so I saw this, I experienced it as a, a, a person who's in my life had, had relationships with rabbis. And so when we came back, we started thinking, my wife and I started thinking about what can we do to have an impact? And we started in the Masorti movement, which is where we live. It's, it's, uh, we're conservative Jews. Um, we belong to and are very involved in our conservative community here. And so we decided we would start trying to build a supporting network basically to empower community rabbis in Israel in the Masorti movement. And we did that for a few years. Let me just stop you for one second. Sure. We should just note that Israel is really based on the British system, where the government is the source of income and funding for clergy in the country. And so rabbis are paid by the government to do their work. And in Israel, only those rabbis who are recognized by the chief rabbinate are eligible. That would include a very specific list of Orthodox and Haredi rabbis, but the non-Orthodox rabbis, Sorti rabbis, Reform rabbis, and others are not recognized and do not receive any funding. And so hence the problem. That's exactly right. And I'll say one other point is there's approximately 8 million Jews in Israel, less than 10% are ultra-Orthodox, means 90% of the population. So uh, some 7 million Jews are not receiving access to Judaism through their own community rabbi. And furthermore, they don't feel like they should have to pay for it. Because in, in Israel, just like you described, there's a, there's a social system that says, religion will be provided by the state. There's nowhere else on the planet where Judaism is distributed in this manner. And so we saw that as a problem. 
But I'll say, I got to tell you this. This is from my dad. This is from Honey. He reacted. I remember the story reacted about, I, I came home one day. I was upset about somebody. And I was talking about them in school, about what, what happened in school. And he said to me, tell me one thing good about that guy. And I couldn't understand what he was talking about because I wanted to tell him all the bad. And he said, it's simple to tear somebody down. It's hard to build them up. You should spend your life trying to build up and not tearing down. I lived that lesson that my father taught me at a young age. That was my instinct on seeing this reality in Israeli society. Well, your father really was his name, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, honey, honey. And that's a, there's a great sweetness and wisdom to that. So you look for the good and look to build up. So the Honey Foundation is a philanthropy. How does it build up? What does it do in Israel? Yeah. How does it follow your father's vision? So on a very basic level, what the Honey Foundation is doing is supporting community rabbis, spiritual leaders, and it's across the religious spectrum. We started in the Masorti movement, but, but today we are supporting about 200 some rabbis and they come from all, in all flavors. They're, there's open orthodoxy, there's modern orthodoxy, there's conservative Masorti, there's reform. There's all kinds of formulations that Israelis have configured. There's something called Eretz Yisraeli. There's a group that refers to themselves as secular rabbis. Mm -hmm. I still struggle with what that means, but they've created their own. There's also a secular yeshiva. So Judaism in Israel is become much more organic, organically Israeli. You can go on a Friday night to the beach in Tel Aviv and see hundreds of people, and they're engaging in a very different, very beautiful service that uh, is just organic. It's organic to Israel. It doesn't really compare to the structure of American Jew Jewish life. But you had the guts to get involved. So yeah. tell us a little bit about the kinds of things that you support. So we actually help the rabbis choose to stop doing their other jobs. And we do it by, obviously, by providing them salary stipends. We do it by providing them professional development. You know, I wrote something about this once. I titled it, Who Are Israelis Going to Call? And... So in Anshe Emet, when somebody has a family emergency, they call their rabbi. They call Michael Siegel. When somebody is preparing for a great simcha, for real joy, they call Michael Siegel. When somebody's just given birth to their child, they call Michael Siegel. Israelis don't have that. Israelis don't have that, that opportunity and therefore I think get robbed of the communal power that's inherent in Judaism. And so what we do is provide money, we provide professional support, meaning training on how to do that. And really I'll tell you an element that I think is making an enormous difference is we help support the entrepreneurial instincts in these rabbis. That's what we're doing. And it's really working. And so in a way, what you're doing is you are fr financially freeing up rabbis to be leaders and not be part-time leaders, but to allow themselves to fully engage their leadership potential. 
Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So I'm a business person. I'm an investment guy. I, I've spent my life being a value investor. It, it basically means taking a very long view at businesses that are currently undergoing real pain, real struggle, and saying the long term, this is a temporary phenomenon, and the long term is going to be good. And, and because I've done enough research to understand that, or at least make that judgment, I can make an investment at an attractive price. And in the long run, I expect an attractive return in return. And so it's the same idea here. The leverage point is the rabbi, but the rabbi is the conduit to the community. And that's, that's where this is exciting. So your investment is in leadership. So do you have a philosophy of leadership? Do you, um, do you have a view on Jewish leadership and what it should be? Wow. You wow. know, if you're, if, you know, if you're, if you're an investor, you have to have an eye towards these things. And so I think if we kind of distill this down a little bit, you must mm -hmm. see um, different aspects of leadership that you're willing to invest in. So talk about that for a moment. So first of all, the first point I would make about leadership is other people decide who's a leader. The leader doesn't decide who's a leader. Other people follow the leader. And so there's some intangible in every leader that I've ever seen who's been successful where it comes organically from that individual. So the title doesn't immediately create a leader. That's fact, right. if someone, the fact that someone's a rabbi or has the title rabbi, it gets your foot in the door, but not much more. Yeah, look, you know, we all know this in every aspect of our lives, that there are professionals who have great educations, but who aren't geared toward being the leader of other people in that. And so one of the first aspects we look for is somebody who's driven to help others explore and discover what is possible in Judaism. You know, there's a phrase that's being used today as uh, fluently in Israeli society. It's shocking to me that this is a relatively new phrase. The phrase is Israeli Judaism, mm. Israeli Judaism. It's funny because I never conceived that you would have to think of Israeli Judaism as something. It's Israel, for goodness sakes. Of course, it's Israeli Judaism. But, you know, it's it's finally becoming the focal point. I think it's partly because Israel is now 72 years old. There are generations that have grown up without access to spiritual leadership and are now in a comfortable enough position, I think, to be yearning for it. It's actually, I would say, very similar to what's going on in the United States, that young people are saying, I need something, I need meaning, and we're finding it by supporting these leaders. Well, I think it's also a reflection of the fact that Ben-Gurion was a great leader for all the reasons that you noted, but he wasn't a prophet. His uh, dependence on a secular approach to Judaism as he tried to create a new Jew, took Israel to remarkable heights, but not in the spiritual realm. And now you have a generation that is really searching. And so in a sense, as a good investor, timing is everything. This is a remarkable time in Israel because people are searching, they're looking, and you're investing. So talk to us about some of the projects that you feel are really making a difference in Israel. I said earlier that we started in the Masorti movement, and there are 25 rabbis that we're supporting in the Masorti movement, each of whom has communities. They're growing their communities 
It's very exciting. One of the first things we did with that group, it actually came from the group. They asked, would there be some way we could add to the commitment we're making and bring them together once, twice, three times per year to learn together, to study together, to get to know each other better? So we created a series of conferences and I learned something extraordinary. I learned that these rabbis had never spent time together, had never mm -hmm. formed their own uh, way of communicating with one another regularly about day-to-day -day realities of being a communal rabbi. And so we got them together. We now take them on a three-day conference together. We do two other day-long conferences during the year, and they're all driven by the rabbis. They're for the rabbis. There is no outside force causing them to do anything. And what's happened is they've become a group. I'll tell you one more that I'm very excited about. We're speaking at a time when all of us are trapped in our homes because of coronavirus. And one of the mm -hmm. things that we decided to do was to create uh, WhatsApp groups of rabbis. And we opened it to the entire spectrum of rabbis. So, so as I said before, there's, there's 200 some rabbis across the religious spectrum. One of the realities in Israel is historically they don't speak with one another for a variety of reasons. Mostly, I'll say, they're afraid. The Orthodox rabbis are afraid to be seen talking with, communing with, being in a collective with the non-Orthodox rabbis. And the non-Orthodox rabbis feel the same way about their Orthodox brethren. And everybody feels that way about the, the folks who describe themselves as, as secular or chiloni. And so mm. we created these WhatsApp groups, and there are now 200 rabbis participating together, talking with one another. I'm telling you, I get, I get 100 WhatsApp notices every day during this uh, isolation we're all in, talking about strategies that they're following, sharing new prayers that they're writing, sharing songs that they're celebrating, opening their communities to Zoom classes to other than people who are naturally part of their communities. It's changing. It's really, it's exciting because it's changing the reality, which is what we've been trying to do. Well, and it sounds like you're doing it. And now that you're in your fourth year, it sounds like the project is going remarkably well. Yeah. And uh, and that you are succeeding, and I I have to believe that part part of the success was adding Rabbi David Hoffman to your staff. Uh, Rabbi Hoffman is a remarkable teacher. He uh, did great things at JTS as a vice chancellor, and now he's the president of the Honey Foundation. Can you talk for a minute just about what David has added to uh, the Honey Foundation? Sure. And how has he helped you succeed? I'm going to answer that question, but I got to tell you a story that's embedded in your question. I've been fortunate enough to be part of a group that started a business 25 years ago. And 25 years ago, I was a kid and I was, you know, crazy enough to think I could start a business. And now, 25 years later, we're lucky enough to say the business has thrived, has survived, and We've now got 120 employees and offices in Europe and Australia. And one of my partners said something to me that 
I know is true. I wish I had known it before he said it, but I'll say I give him the credit. He said to me, the most important decision any of us will ever make is who we hire. And the mm -hmm. most important thing we can do when we hire is hire somebody better than you. Now, lots of people have said it, and I'll say it's hard to do that, but it's the most exciting reality when you can build a team with people who are extraordinary. And adding David Hoffman, which we did almost a year ago now, David was the vice chancellor of JTS. He is a master teacher. I met him when he was a rabbinical student. He became my teacher. I had gone to my rabbi in New Jersey, Alan Silverstein, and said, I really missed being part of the experience I had in the Wexner program. I want to keep learning. And he said, I, I want you to meet a young man who I've met who's an extraordinary teacher. And that was David Hoffman. He started coming to my office. 20 years went by and he was coming to my office every week and we would learn. We would learn together. We would learn something he was interested in. I always joke. I said, I'm in his remedial class because I'm still learning the basics from him. But I'll say he's got that ability to make everybody feel that their contribution to Jewish learning is unique, special, and important. And so that's what he's bringing now to the Honey Foundation. He's bringing a level of humility and possibility that's changing the way we think about things. And so it's he's had an enormous effect. I'll say importantly, David led JTS's um, development campaign to rebuild the campus. Which, which, by the way, has been a remarkable success. A remarkable success. Uh, David, David was um, not single-handedly, but the driver in raising nearly $100 million for JTS. So, and, and obviously, David had heard me talking about the Honey Foundation and my excitement about what was going on for several years. And so uh, back a year or so, David came to me and said, I'd like you to think about including me in your plans for the Honey Foundation. I have to tell you the truth. I didn't know what he meant. And so he sort of shoved it down my throat. He said, I really <laughs> want to come to work for you. And I said, wow. I said, David, that's an amazing compliment, but I want to tell you something. You don't know what you're talking about. This is a startup. I've been in a startup before. You've been in a big institution. Startups mean you do everything. You're right. the chief, chief cook and bottle washer, and it's not so simple. We're not, we may not be ready to have David Hoffman. But then David said? And David said, Bill, you don't understand this is my passion. What you're doing, you've articulated my passion. I want to make change in the Jewish world, and you're doing it. So what has he accomplished in a year? Oh, wow. So first of all, I'd be remiss if I didn't fully describe the team we have. So um, David joined three of us who are spending an awful lot of time making this mm -hmm. work. So the first person that I hired I guess um, it's fair to say I believe in nepotism, was my daughter. My daughter, Sarah, I'm extraordinarily proud of all my children. I have three. Uh, Sarah is a Jewish educator and 
an extremely talented, creative person who uh, spent five years helping run the Hebrew school program at Park Avenue Synagogue in New York, working wow. for your former colleague, Elliot Cosgrove. And so um, Sarah, Sarah got a great opportunity and then decided she was, as she started having children, she didn't want to be working into the so, night. So what, what has he accomplished? What has, what, what has your team accomplished now in this past year? In one year, what's basically happened is the Honey Foundation has gone from being one family's enterprise to being known across Israel to having 13 other families who have reached out to us and said, can I join with you, to having Jews in America start talking about this mm -hmm. issue and becoming aware. And now, uh, unfortunately, this year we can't have a conference in Israel. Israelis now speak of the Honey Foundation as the address for bringing Jews together across the religious spectrum via rabbi, professional communal rabbis. So Dave, David's been a crucial part of, of that growth. I have to tell you, Bill, this is a, a remarkable story. And what I love about it is that you had a vision and you acted on your vision and we are benefiting in real time. And at a time when we are searching for ways to support Israel in general, but also the non-Orthodox expressions and spiritual expressions of Jewish life. This is a wonderful, wonderful example and a wonderful cause. And I want to encourage people to follow the good work of the Honey Foundation. But most of all, I want to thank you on behalf of all of us for what you and David and your daughter are all doing together, because you're making a difference. And we applaud you. And in this month of ER, when we celebrate the 72nd anniversary of the state of Israel, you remind us that amidst the coronavirus, we've got a very bright future ahead. So thanks a lot for taking the time to join us on the Jewish Kaleidoscope. Thanks, Michael. It was great to talk with you.